This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slipper. It's fuzzy, it's wooly. I know it's summertime, but you know what's nice? Uh, something to get for someone later this year. Uh, maybe something to wear around your cold apartment uh, in the early mornings. Uh, maybe you've got cold concrete floors. Maybe you live in New Zealand or Chile or someone else, bleh, somewhere else that's cool this time of year. Who knows? But uh, BunnySlippers.com has a wide array of slippers to choose from, all kinds of interests and animals and all kinds of cool, fun stuff. You'll find something you'll like at BunnySlippers.com. Yeah, it's that simple, BunnySlippers.com. Highland Cow Slipper, it's a big woolly bull, and I love my Highland Cow Slippers. Wear them all the time in the studio, which does have a chilly floor even in the summer, especially when I crank up the AC, because I'm a baby when it comes to heat. Unless I'm working in a kitchen, then I forget to drink water and pass out uh, sometime around 12 hours. <laughs> anyway, that's one reason DB Spitzer doesn't work in kitchens much anymore. Uh, let's also talk about this month uh, is the end of June, and we're going to finish that up with some W.E.B. Du Bois. So if you hear any noise, it's just me and Du Bois. Hit me. Um, so, yeah. And that was a uh, Parliament uh, reference. And if you want to learn more about Parliament, go to your local library or check this out. Alexa, play Parliament. Siri, play Parliament. And now, now you know, <laughs> somewhere in your house, maybe, uh, a robot is playing music for you. Enjoy. So here we go. Uh, this show is always brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and listeners like you buying our cool t-shirts that you'll find on PGTTCM.com. You can check the show notes to find out where to go, or you can just simply, I don't know, find us on Facebook. We've got a link somewhere to somewhere. You buy shirts. It keeps the show going. Makes me happy. Makes you happy. Everyone gets something. We also have a Patreon thing going on and a patron thing going on. Not really much going on with either of those, so do what you want with those. Text me, let me know if you do subscribe to any of those so I can mention your name and say, hey, check this person out. Also, if you have questions about anything about the show, if you want to talk about anything, we've got a contact form at pgttcm.com. Tell your friends about us. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere um, that you find your podcasts. I recommend Apple because that's where I get all my feedback from. All right, thank you. Here we go. Thinking the matter over, said Harry Cresswell to his father. I'm inclined to advise drawing this tailor out a little further. The colonel puffed his cigar and one eye twinkled, the lid of the other being at the moment suggestively lowered. Was she pretty? He asked, but his son ignored the remark and the father continued. I had a telegram from Taylor this morning after you left. He'll be passing through Montgomery the first of next month and proposes calling. I'll wire him to come, said Harry promptly. At this juncture, the door opened and a young lady entered. Helen Cresswell was twenty, small and pretty, with a slightly languid air. Outside herself, there was little in which she took very great interest, and her interest in herself was not absorbing. Yet she had a curiously sweet way. Her servants liked her, and the tenants could count on her spasmodic attentions in time of sickness and trouble. Good morning, she said with a soft drawl. 
She sauntered over to her father, kissed him, and hung over the back of his chair. Did you get that novel for me, Harry? Expectantly regarding her brother. I forgot it, sis, but I'll be going to town again soon. The young lady showed that she was annoyed. By the by, sis, there's a young lady over at the Negro school whom I think you'd like. Black or white? A young lady, I said. Don't be sarcastic. I heard you. I did not know whether you were using our language or others. She's really unusual and seems to understand things. She's planning a call someday. Shall you be at home? Certainly not, Harry. You're crazy. And she strolled out to the porch, exchanged some remarks with a passing servant, and then nestled comfortably into a hammock. She helped herself to a chocolate and called out musically, "Pa, are you going to town today?" "Yes, honey. Can I go?" "I'm going in an hour or so, and business at the bank will keep me until after lunch." "I don't care. I just must go. I'm clean out of anything to read, and I want to shop and call on Dolly's friend." She's going soon. All right. Can you be ready by eleven? She considered. Yes, I reckon. She drawled, prettily swinging her foot and watching the treetops above the distant swamp. Harry Cresswell, left alone, rang the bell for the butler. Still thinking of going on, you Sam? Asked Cresswell carelessly when the servant appeared. He was a young, light brown boy. His manner obsequious. Why, yes, sir. If you can spare me, spare you, you black rascal. You're going anyhow. Well, you'll repent it. The North is no place for niggers. See here, I want lunch for two at one o'clock. The directions that followed were explicit and given with a particularity that made Sam wonder. Order my trap, he finally directed. Cresswell went out on the high-pillared porch until the trap appeared. Oh, Harry, I wanted to go in the trap. Take me, coaxed his sister. Sorry, sis, but I'm going the other way. I don't believe it," said Miss Cresswell easily as she settled down to another chocolate. Cresswell did not take the trouble to reply. Miss Taylor was on her morning walk when she saw him spinning down the road, and both expressed surprise and pleasure at the meeting. "What a beautiful morning," said the schoolteacher with a glow on her face that said even more. "I'm driving round through the old plantation," he explained. "Won't you join me?" The invitation is tempting," she hesitated. "But I've got just oodles of work. What on Saturday? Saturday is my really busy day, don't you know? I guess I could get off. Really, though, I, I suspect I ought to tell Miss Smith." He looked a little perplexed, but the direction in which her inclinations lay was quite clear to him. "It it would be decidedly the proper thing," he murmured. And we could, of course, invite Miss. She saw the difficulty and interrupted him. It's quite unnecessary. She'll think I have simply gone for a long walk. And soon they were speeding down the silent road, breathing the perfume of the pines. Now a ride of an early spring morning in Alabama over a leisurely old plantation road and behind a spirited horse is an event to be enjoyed. Add to this a man bred to be agreeable and outdoing his training, and a pretty girl gay with newfound companionship. All this is apt to make a morning worth remembering. They turned off the highway and passed through long stretches of plowed and tumbled fields, and other fields brown with the dead ghosts of past years' cotton standing straggling and weather-worn. Long, straight, or curling rows of plowers passed by with steaming, struggling mules, with whips snapping, and the yodel of workers 
or the sharp guttural growl of overseers as a constant accompaniment. They're beginning to plow up the land for the cotton crop, he explained. What a wonderful crop it is. Mary had fallen pensive. Yes, indeed. If only we could get decent returns for it. Why, I thought it was the most valuable crop. She turned to him inquiringly. It is to Negroes and manufacturers, but not to planters. But why don't the planters do something? What can be done with Negroes? His tone was bitter. We tried to combine against manufacturers in the Farmers League last winter. My father was president. The pastime cost him $50,000. Mary Taylor was perplexed but eager. You must correspond with my brother, Mr. Cresswell, she gravely observed. I'm sure he... Before she could finish, an overseer rode up. He began talking abruptly with a quick side glance at Mary, in which she might have caught a gleam of surprised curiosity. That old negra jam socks over on the lower place, sir, ain't showed up again this morning. Cresswell nodded. I'll drive by and say, he said carelessly. The old man was discovered sitting before his cabin with his head in his hands. He was tall, black, and gaunt, partly bald, with tufted hair. One leg was swathed in rags, and his eyes, as he raised them, wore a cowed and furtive look. Well, Uncle Jim, why aren't you at work? called Cresswell from the roadside. The old man rose painfully to his feet, swayed against the cabin, and clutched off his cap. It's my leg again, Massa Harry, the leg what I heard in the gin last fall, he answered uneasily. Cresswell frowned. It's probably whiskey, he assured his companion in an undertone. Then to the man, you must get to the fail tomorrow. His habitually calm, unfeeling positiveness left no ground for objection. I cannot support you in idleness, you know. Yes, Master Harry, the other returned with conciliatory eagerness. I knows that. I knows it and I ain't shirking. But Master Harry, they ain't doing me right about my cabin. I just wants to show you. He got out some dirty papers and started to hobble forward, wincing with pain. Mary Taylor stirred in her seat under the involuntary impulse to help, but Cresswell touched the horse. All right, Uncle Jim, he said. We'll look it over tomorrow. They turned presently to where they could see the Cresswell oaks waving lazily in the sunlight and the white gleam of the pillared big house. A pause at the Cresswell store, where Mr. Cresswell entered, afforded Mary Taylor an opportunity further to extend her fund of information. Do you go to school? She inquired of the black boy who held the horse, her mean sympathetic and interested. No, ma'am, he mumbled. What's your name? Buddy, as one of Aunt Rachel's chillings. And where do you live, Buddy? I live with Granny on the upper place. Well, I'll see Aunt Rachel and ask her to send you to school. Won't do no good. She done asked, and Mr. Cresswell, he say he ain't gonna have no more of his niggas. But Mr. Cresswell came out just then, and with him a big, fat, and greasy black man with little eyes and soft, wheedling voice. He was following Cresswell at the side, but just a little behind, hat in hand, head aslant, and talking differentially. Cresswell strode carelessly on, answering him with good-natured tolerance. The black man stopped with humility before the trap and swept a profound obeisance. Cresswell glanced up quizzically at Miss Taylor. This, he announced, is Jones, the Baptist preacher, begging. Ah, lady, in mellow, unctuous tones, I don't know what we poor black folks would do without Mr. Cresswell. The Lord bless him, said the minister, shoving his hand far down into his pocket. 
Shortly afterward, they were approaching the Cresswell Mansion when the young man reined in the horse. If you wouldn't mind, he suggested, I could introduce my sister to you. I should be delighted, answered Miss Taylor readily. When they rolled up to the homestead under its famous oaks, the hour was past one. The house was a white oblong building of two stories. In front was the high-pillared porch, semicircular, extending to the roof with a balcony in the second story. On the right was a broad veranda looking toward a wide lawn with the main road and the red swamp in the distance. The butler met them all obeisance. Ask Miss Helen to come down, said Mr. Cresswell. Sam glanced at him. Miss Helen will be dreadful sorry, but she and the colonel have just gone to town. I believe her auntie ain't well. Mr. Cresswell looked annoyed. Well, well, that's too bad, he said. But at any rate, have a seat out here on the veranda, Miss Taylor, and Sam, can't you find us a sandwich and something cool? I could not be so inhospitable as to send you away hungry at this time of day. Miss Taylor sat down in a comfortable low chair facing the refreshing breeze and feasted her eyes on the scene. Oh, this was life. A smooth green lawn and beds of flowers, a vista of brown fields, and the dark line of wood beyond. The deft, quiet butler brought out a little table spread with the whitest of cloths and laid with the brightest of silver and found a dainty lunch. There was a bit of fried chicken breast, some crisp bacon, browned potatoes, little round beaten biscuit, and rose-colored sherbet with a whiff of wine in it. Miss Taylor wondered a little at the bounty of Southern hospitality, but she was hungry and she ate heartily, then leaned back dreamily and listened to Mr. Cresswell's smooth Southern R's, adding a word here and there that kept the conversation going. At last, with a sigh, she arose to her feet. I must go. What shall I tell Miss Smith? No, no, no carriage. I, I must walk. Of course. However, she could not refuse to let him go at least halfway ostensibly to tell her of the coming of her brother. He expressed again his disappointment at his sister's absence. Somewhat to Miss Taylor's surprise, Miss Smith said nothing until they were parting for the night. Then she asked, Was Miss Cresswell at home? Mary reddened. She had been called suddenly to town. Well, my dear, I wouldn't do it again. The girl was angry. I'm not a schoolgirl, but a grown woman incapable of caring for myself. Moreover, in matters of propriety, I do not think you have usually found my ideas too lax. Rather, the opposite. There, there, dear, don't be angry. Only I think, if your brother knew, he will know in a very few weeks he is coming to visit the Cresswells. And Miss Taylor sailed triumphantly up the stairs. But John Taylor was not the man to wait weeks when a purpose could be accomplished in days or hours. No sooner was Harry Cresswell's telegram at hand than he hastened back from Savannah, struck across country, and the week after his sister's ride found him striding up the carriageway of the Cresswell home. John Taylor had prospered since summer. The cotton manufacturer's combine was all but a fact. Mr. Easterly had discovered that his chief clerk's sense and executive ability were invaluable, and John Taylor was slated for a salary in five figures when things should be finally settled, not to mention a generous slice of stock, watery at present, but warranted to ripen early. While Mr. Easterly still regarded Taylor's larger trust as chimerical, some occurrences of the fall made him take a respectful attitude toward it. Just as the final clauses of the combine agreement were to be signed, there appeared a shortage in the cotton crop, and prices began to soar. 
The cause was obviously the unexpected success of the new Farmers League among the cotton growers. Mr. Easterly found it comparatively easy to overthrow the corner, but the flurry made some of the manufacturers timid, and the trust agreement was postponed until a year later. This experience and the persistence of Mr. Taylor induced Mr. Easterly to take a step toward the larger project. He let in some eager outside capital to the safer manufacturing scheme and withdrew a corresponding amount of Mrs. Gray's money. This he put into John Taylor's hands to invest in the South in bank stock and industries, with the idea of playing a part in the financial situation there. It's a risk, Taylor, of course, and we'll let the old lady take the risk. At the worst, it's safer than the damned foolishness she has in mind. So it happened that John Taylor went south to look after large investments, and as Mr. Easterly expressed it, to bring back Fox, not dreams. His investment matters went quickly and well, and now he turned to his wider and bigger scheme. He wrote the Cresswells tentatively, expecting no reply or an evasive one, planning to circle around them. Drawing his nets closer and trying them again later, to his surprise, they responded quickly. Hmm. Hard pressed, he decided and hurried to them. So it was the week after Mary Taylor's ride that found him at Cresswell's front door, thin, eagle-eyed, fairly well dressed, and radiating confidence. John Taylor, he announced to Sam, jerkily thrusting out a card. We want to see Mr. Cresswell soon as possible. Sam made him wait an hour for the sake of discipline, and then brought the father and son. Good morning, Mr. Cresswell, and Mr. Cresswell again," said Mr. Taylor, helping himself to a straight-backed chair. "Hope you'll pardon this unexpected visit. Found myself called through Montgomery just after I got your wire. Thought I'd better drop over." At Harry's suggestion, they moved to the veranda and sat down over whiskey and soda, which Taylor refused, and plunged into the subject without preliminaries. I'm assuming that you gentlemen are in the cotton business for making money. So am I. I see a way in which you and your friends can help me and mine and clear up more millions than all of us can spend. For this reason, I've hunted you up. This is my scheme. See here, there are a thousand cotton mills in this country, half of them in the South, one fourth in New England, and one fourth in the Middle States. They are capitalized at six hundred million dollars. Now let me tell you, we control three hundred and fifty millions of that capitalization. The trust is going through capitalization at a billion. The only thing that threatens it is child labor legislation in the South, the tariff, and the control of the supply of cotton. Pretty big hindrances, you say? That's so. But look here, we've got the stock so placed that nothing short of a popular upheaval can send any child labor bill through Congress in six years. See, after that, we don't care. Same thing applies to the tariff. The last bill ran ten years. The present bill will last longer, or I lose my guess. Especially if Smith is in the Senate. Well, then there remains raw cotton. The connection of cotton raising and its raw material is too close to risk a manufacturing trust that does not include practical control of the raw material. For that reason, we're planning a trust to include the raising and manufacturing of cotton in America. Then, too, cornering the cotton market here means the whip hand of the industrial world. Gentlemen, it's the biggest idea of the century. It beats steel. Colonel Cresswell chuckled. How do you spell that? He asked. But John Taylor was not to be diverted. His thin face was pale, but his gray eyes burned with the fire of a zealot. Harry Cresswell only smiled dimly and looked interested. Now again, continued John Taylor, 
There are a million cotton farms in the South, half run by colored people and half by whites. Leave the colored out of account as long as they are disenfranchised. The half million white farms are owned and controlled by 5,000 wholesale merchants and 3,000 big landowners of whom you, Colonel Cresswell, are among the biggest with your 50,000 acres. Ten banks control these 8,000 people. One of these is the Jefferson National of Montgomery, of which you are a silent director. Colonel Cresswell started. This man evidently had inside information. Did he know of the mortgage, too? Don't be alarmed. I'm safe, Taylor assured him. Now then, if we can get the banks, wholesale merchants, and biggest planters into line, we can control the cotton crop. But objected Harry Cresswell. While the banks and the large merchants may be possibilities, do you know what it means to try to get planters into line? Yes, I do. And what I don't know, you and your father do. Colonel Cresswell is president of the Farmers League. That's the reason I'm here. Your success last year made you indispensable to our plans. Our success? laughed Colonel Cresswell ruefully, thinking of the $50,000 lost and the mortgage to cover it. Yes, sir. Success. You didn't know it. We were too careful to allow that. And I say frankly, you wouldn't know it now if we weren't convinced you were too far involved and the League too discouraged to repeat the dose. Now look here, sir, began Colonel Cresswell, flushing and drawing himself erect. There, there, Colonel Cresswell. Don't misunderstand me. I'm a plain man. I'm playing a big game, a tremendous one. I need you, and I know you need me. I find out about you, and my sources of knowledge are wide and unerring. But the knowledge is safe, sir. It's buried. Last year, when you people curtailed cotton acreage and warehoused a big chunk of the crop, you gave the millmen the scare of their lives. We had a hasty conference, and the result was that the bottom fell out of your credit. Colonel Cresswell grew pale. There was a disquieting, relentless element in this unimpassioned man's tone. You failed, pursued John Taylor, because you couldn't get the banks and the big merchants behind you. We've got them behind us, with big chunks of stock and a signed ironclad agreement. You can wheel the planters in the line. Will you do it? John Taylor bent forward, tense but cool and steel like. Harry Cresswell laid his hand on his father's arm and said quietly, And where do we come in? That's business, affirmed John Taylor. You and 250 of the biggest planters come in on the ground floor of the $2 billion all cotton combine. It can easily mean $2 million to you in five years. And the other planters? They come in for high priced cotton until we get our grip. And then the quiet question seemed to invoke a vision for John Taylor. The gray eyes took on the faraway look of a seer. The thin, bloodless lips formed a smile in which there was nothing pleasant. They keep their mouths shut or we squeeze them and buy the land. We propose to own the cotton belt of the South. Colonel Cresswell started indignantly from his seat. Do you think, by God, sir, that I'd betray Southern gentlemen to. But Harry's hand and impassive manner restrained him. He cooled as suddenly as he had flared up. Thank you very much, Mr. Taylor, he concluded. We'll consider this matter carefully. You'll spend the night, of course. Can't possibly. Must catch the next train back. But we must talk further, the colonel insisted. And then there's your sister. By Joe, forgot all about Mary. John Taylor, after a little desultory talk, followed his host upstairs. 
The next afternoon, John Taylor was sitting beside Helen Cresswell on the porch which overlooked the terrace and was, on the whole, thinking less of cotton than he had for several years. To be sure, he was talking cotton, but he was doing it mechanically and from long habit and was really thinking how charming a girl Helen Cresswell was. She fascinated him, for his sister Taylor had a feeling of superiority that was almost contempt. The idea of a woman trying to understand and argue about things men knew. He admired the dashing and handsome Miss Easterly, but she scared him and made him angrily awkward. This girl, on the other hand, just lounged and listened with an amused smile or asked the most childlike questions. She required him to wait on her quite as a matter of course to adjust her pillows, hand her the bonbons, and hunt for her lost fan. Mr. Taylor, who had not waited on anybody since his mother died and not much before, found a quite inexplicable pleasure in these little domesticities. Several times he took out his watch and frowned, yet he managed to stay with her quite happily. On her part, Miss Cresswell was vastly amused. Her acquaintance with men was not wide, but it was thorough so far as her own class was concerned. They were all well-dressed and leisurely, fairly good-looking, and they said the same words and did the same things in the same way. They paid her compliments, which she did not believe, and they did not expect her to believe. They were charmingly differential in the matter of dropped handkerchiefs, but tyrannical of opinion. They were thoughtful about candy and flowers, but thoughtless about feelings and income. Altogether, they were delightful, but cloying. This man was startlingly different, ungainly, and always in a desperate, unaccountable hurry. He knew no pretty speeches. He certainly did not measure up to her standard of breeding, and yet somehow he was a gentleman. All this was new to Helen Cresswell. And she liked it. Meanwhile, the men above stairs lingered in the colonel's office, the older one perturbed and sputtering, the younger insistent and imperturbable. The fact is, father, he was saying, as you yourself have said, one bad crop of cotton would almost ruin us. But the prospects are good. What are prospects in March? No, father, this is the situation. Three good crops in succession will wipe off our indebtedness and leave us facing only low prices and a scarcity of niggers. On the other hand, the father interrupted impatiently, Yes, on the other hand, if we plunge deeper in debt and betray our friends, we may come out millionaires or paupers. Precisely, said Harry Cresswell calmly. Now our plan is to take no chances. I propose going north and looking into this matter thoroughly. If he represents money and has money, and if the trust has really got the grip he says it has, why, it's a case of crush or get crushed, and we'll have to join them on their own terms. If he's bluffing or the thing looks weak, we'll wait. It all ended as matters usually did end, in Harry's having his way. He came downstairs, expecting indeed, rather hoping to find Taylor impatiently striding to and fro, watch in hand. But here he was, ungainly it might be, but quite docile, drawing the picture of a power loom for Miss Cresswell, who seemed really interested. Harry silently surveyed them from the door, and his face lighted with a new thought. Taylor, espying him, leapt to his feet and hauled out his watch. Well, I... he began lamely. 
No, you aren't either, interrupted Harry with a laugh that was unmistakably cordial and friendly. You had quite forgotten what you were waiting for. Isn't that so, sis? Helen regarded her brother through her veiling lashes. What meant this sudden assumption of warmth and amiability? No, indeed. He was raging with impatience, she returned. Why, Miss Cresswell, I... I... John Taylor forsook social amenities and pulled himself together. Well, shortly. Now for that talk. Ready? And quite forgetting Miss Cresswell, he bolted into the parlor. The decision we have come to is this, said Harry Cresswell. We are in debt, as you know. $49,742.12, responded Taylor. In three notes, due in 12, 24, and 36 months. Interest at 8%, held back. The colonel snorted his amazement and Harry Cresswell cut in. Yes, he calmly admitted. And with good crops for three years, we'd be all right. Good crops even for two years would leave us fairly well off. You mean it would relieve you of the present stringency and put you face to face with the falling price of cotton and rising wages? Was John Taylor's dry addendum. Rising price of cotton, you mean, Harry corrected. Oh, temporarily, John Taylor admitted. Precisely, and thus postpone the decision. No, Mr. Cresswell, I'm offering to let you in on the ground floor now, not next year or year after. Mr. Taylor, have you any money in this? Everything I've got. Well, the thing is this way. If you can prove to us that conditions are as you say, we're in for it. Good. Meet me in New York, say, let's see, this is March 10th, well, May 3rd. Young Cresswell was thinking rapidly. This man without doubt represented money. He was anxious for an alliance. Why? Was it all straight, or did the whole move conceal a trick? His eyes strayed to the porch where his pretty sister sat languidly, and then toward the school where the other sister lived. John Taylor looked out on the porch, too. They glanced quickly at each other, and each wondered if the other had shared his thought. Harry Cresswell did not voice his mind, for he was not wholly disposed to welcome what was there, but he could not refrain from saying in tones almost confidential, You could recommend this deal then, could you, to your own friends? To my own family, asserted John Taylor, looking at Harry Cresswell with sudden interest, but Mr. Cresswell was staring at the end of his cigar. End of chapter 10 Zora, observed Miss Smith, it's a great blessing not to need spectacles, isn't it? Zora thought that it was, but she was wondering just what spectacles had to do with the complaint she had brought to the office from Miss Taylor. I'm always losing my glasses, and they get dirty and... Oh, dear. Now, where is that paper? Zora pointed silently to the complaint. No, not that. Another paper. It must be in my room. Don't you want to come up and help me look? They went up to the clean, bare room with its white iron bed, its cool, spotless shades and shining windows. Zora walked about softly and looked, while Miss Smith quietly searched on desk and bureau, paying no attention to the girl. For the time being, she was silent. I sometimes wish, she began at length, I had a bright-eyed girl like you to help me find and place things. Zora made no comment. Sometimes Bless helps me added Miss Smith guilefully. Zora looked sharply at her. Could I help? she asked, almost timidly. Why, I don't know. The answer was deliberate. 
There are one or two little things, perhaps. Placing hand gently upon Zor's shoulder, she pointed out a few odd tasks and left the girl busily doing them. Then she returned to the office and threw Miss Taylor's complaint into the wastebasket. For a week or more, Zora slipped in every day and performed the little tasks that Miss Smith laid out. She sorted papers, dusted the bureau, hung a curtain. She did not do the things very well, and she broke some china. But she worked earnestly and quickly, and there was no thought of pay. Then too, did not bless praise her with a happy smile, as together, day after day, they stood and watched the black dirt where the silver fleece lay planted. She dreamed and sang over that dark field, and again and again appealed to him. Suppose it shouldn't come up after all, and he would laugh and say that of course it would come up. One day, when Zor was helping Miss Smith in the bedroom, she paused with her arms full of clothes, fresh from the laundry. Where shall I put these? Miss Smith looked around. They might go in there, she said, pointing to a door. Zora opened it. A tiny bedroom was disclosed, with one broad window looking toward the swamp. White curtains adorned it, and white hangings draped the plain bureau and washstand and the little bed. There was a study table and a small bookshelf holding a few books, all simple and clean. Zora paused uncertainly and surveyed the room. Sometimes, when you're tired and want to be alone, you can come up here, Zora," said Miss Smith carelessly. "No one uses this room." Zora caught her breath sharply but said nothing. The next day, Miss Smith said to her, when she came in, "I'm busy now, dear, but you go up to your little room and read, and I'll call." Zora quietly obeyed. An hour later, Miss Smith looked in. Then she closed the door lightly and left. Another hour flew by before Zora hurried down. I was reading and I forgot," she said. "It's all right," returned Miss Smith. "I didn't need you. And any day after you get all your lessons, I think Miss Taylor will excuse you and let you go to your room and read." Miss Taylor, it transpired, was more than glad. Day after day, Bless and Zora visited the field, but ever the ground lay in unrelieved black beneath the bright sun, and they would go reluctantly home again. Today there was much work to be done, and Zora labored steadily and eagerly, never pausing and gaining in deftness and care. In the afternoon, Bless went to town with the school wagon. A light shower flew up from the south, lingered a while, and fled, leaving a fragrance in the air. For a moment, Zora paused and her nostrils quivered. Then, without a word, she slipped downstairs, glided into the swamp, and sped away to the island. She swung across the tree, and a low, delighted cry bubbled on her lips. All the rich black ground was sprinkled with tender green. She bent above the verdant tenderness and kissed it. Then she rushed back, bursting into the room. It's come! It's come! The silver fleece. Miss Smith was startled. The silver fleece? She echoed in bewilderment. Zora hesitated. It came over her all at once that this one great, all-absorbing thing meant nothing to the gaunt, tired-looking woman before her. Would Bless care if I told? She asked doubtfully. No, Miss Smith ventured, and then the girl crouched at her feet and told the dream and the story. Many factors were involved that were quite foreign to the older woman's nature and training. The recital brought to her New England mind many questions of policy and propriety. And yet, as she looked down upon the dark face, hot with enthusiasm, it all seemed somehow more than right. Slowly and lightly, Miss Smith slipped her arm about Zora and nodded and smiled a perfect understanding. They looked out together into the darkening twilight. It is so late and wet, and you're tired tonight. Don't you think you'd better sleep in your little room? Zora sat still. 
She thought of the noisy flaming cabin in the dark swamp, but a contrasting thought of the white bed made her timid, and slowly she shook her head. Nevertheless, Miss Smith led her to the room. Here are things for you to wear, she pointed out, opening the bureau, and here's the bathroom. She left the girl standing in the middle of the floor. In time, Zora came to stay often at Miss Smith's cottage and to learn new and unknown ways of living and dressing. She still refused to board, for that would cost more than she could pay yet, and she would accept no charity. Gradually, an undemonstrative friendship sprang up between the pale old gray-haired teacher and the dark young black-haired girl. Delicately, too, but gradually, the companionship of Bless and Zora was guided and regulated. Of morning, Zora would hurry through her lessons and get excused to fly to the swamp to work and dream alone. At noon, Bless would run down and they would linger until he must hurry back to dinner. After school, he would go again, working while she was busy in Miss Smith's office, and returning later would linger a while to tell Zora of his day while she busied herself with her little tasks. Saturday mornings, they would go to the swamp and work together, and sometimes Miss Smith, stealing away from curious eyes, would come and sit and talk with them as they toiled. In those days, for these two souls, earth came very near to heaven. Both were in the midst of that mighty change from youth to womanhood and manhood. Their manner toward each other by degrees grew shyer and more thoughtful. There was less comradeship, but the little meant more. The rough good fellowship was silently put aside. They no longer lightly clasped hands, and each at times wondered in painful self-consciousness if the other cared. Then began, too, the long and subtle change wherein a soul, until now unmindful of its wrappings, comes suddenly to consciousness of body and clothes, when it gropes and tries to adjust one with the other, and through them to give the inner deeper self finer and fuller expression. One saw it easily, almost suddenly, in all one's Sunday suit, vivid neckties, and awkward fads. Slower, subtler, but more striking was the change in Zora as she began to earn bits of pin money in the office and to learn to sew. Dresses hung straighter, belts served a better purpose, stockings were smoother, underwear was daintier. Then her hair, that great dark mass of immovable, infinitely curled hair, began to be subdued and twisted and combed until with steady pains and study it lay in thick twisted braids about her velvet forehead like some shadowed halo. All this came much more slowly and spasmodically than one tells it. Few noticed the change much, none noticed all. And yet there came a night, a student social, when with a certain suddenness the whole school, teachers and pupils, realized the newness of the girl. And even Bless was startled. He had bought her in town at Christmas time a pair of white satin slippers, partly to test the smallness of her feet on which, in younger days, he had rallied her, and partly because she had mentioned a possible white dress. They were a cheap, plain pair, but dainty, and they fitted well. When the evening came and the students were marching and the teachers, save Miss Smith, were sitting rather primly apart and commenting, she entered the room. She was a little late, and a hush greeted her. One boy, with the imitable drawl of the race, pushed back his ice cream and addressed it with a mournful headshake. Go away, honey. You lost your taste. The dress was plain and fitted every curving of a healthy girlish form. She paused a moment, white-bodied and white-limbed, but dark and velvet-armed, her full neck and oval head rising rich and almost black above with its deep-lighted eyes and crown of silent, darkling hair.
To some, such a revelation of grace and womanliness in this hoyden, the gentle swelling of lankness to beauty, of lowliness to shy self-poise, was a sudden joy, to others a mere blindness. Mary Taylor was perplexed and in some indefinite way amazed, and many of the other teachers saw no beauty, only a strangeness that brought a smile. They were such as no beauty by convention only, and find it lip-ringed, hoop-skirted, tattooed or corseted as time and place decree. The change in Zora, however, had been neither cataclysmic nor revolutionary, and it was yet far, very far from complete. She still ran and romped in the woods and dreamed her dreams. She still was passionately independent and queer. Tendencies merely had become manifest, some dominant. She would, unhindered, develop to a brilliant, sumptuous womanhood, proud, conquering, full-bodied, and deep-bosomed, a passionate mother of men. Herein lay all her early wildness and strangeness. Herein lay, as yet half-hidden, dimly sensed and all-unspoken, the power of a mighty, all-compelling love for one human soul, and through it for all the souls of men. All this lay growing and developing, but as yet she was still a girl, with a new shyness and a comeliness, and a bold, searching heart. In the field of the silver fleece, all her possibilities were beginning to find expression. These newborn green things, hidden far down in the swamp, begotten in want and mystery, were to her a living wonderful fairy tale come true. All the latent mother in her brooded over them. All her brilliant fancy wove itself about them. They were her dream children, and she tended them jealously. They were her hope, and she worshipped them. When the rabbits tried the tender plants, she watched hours to drive them off, and catching now and then the pulsing pink-eyed invader, she talked to it earnestly. Brer Rabbit? Oh, little Brer Rabbit! Don't you know you mustn't eat Zora's cotton? Naughty, naughty Brer Rabbit! And then she would show it where she gathered piles of fragrant weeds for it and its fellows. The golden green of the first leaves darkened and the plants sprang forward steadily. Never before was such a magnificent beginning, a full month ahead of other cotton. The rain swept down in laughing, bubbling showers and laved their thirsty souls, and Zora held her beating breast day by day, lest it rain too long or too heavily. The sun burned fiercely upon the young cotton plants as the spring hastened, and they lifted their heads in darker, wilder luxuriance, for the time of hoeing was at hand. These days were days of alternate hope and doubt with Bless Alwyn. Strength and ambition and inarticulate love were fighting within him, He felt in the dark thousands of his kind about him a mighty calling to deeds. He was becoming conscious of the narrowness and straightness of his black world, and red anger flashed in him ever and again as he felt his bonds. His mental horizon was broadening as he prepared for the college of next year. He was faintly grasping the wider, fuller world and its thoughts and aspirations. But beside and around and above all this, like subtle permeating ether was... Zora. His feelings for her were not as yet definite, expressed, or grasped. They were rather the atmosphere in which all things occurred, and were felt and judged. From an amusing pastime, she had come to be a companion and thought-mate, and now, beyond this, insensibly, they were drifting to a silenter, mightier mingling of souls, but drifting merely, not arrived, going gently, irresistibly, but not yet at the realized goal. He felt all this as the stirring of a mighty force, but knew not what he felt. The teasing of his fellows, the common love gossip of the schoolyard, 
seemed far different from his plight. He laughed at it and indignantly denied it, yet he was uncomfortable, restless, unhappy. He fancied Zora cared less for his company, and he gave her less, and then was puzzled to find time hanging so empty, so wretchedly empty on his hands. When they were together in these days, they found less to talk about, and had it not been for the silver fleece which in magic willfulness opened both their mouths, they would have found their companionship little more than a series of awkward silences. Yet in their silences, their walks, and their sittings, there was a companionship, a glow, a satisfaction as came to them nowhere else on earth, and they wondered at it. They were both wondering at it this morning as they watched their cotton. It had seemingly bounded forward in a night, and it must be hoed forthwith. Yet hoeing was murder, the ruthless cutting away of tenderer plants that the sturdier might thrive the more and grow. I hate it, Bless, don't you? Hate what? Killing any of it is all so pretty, but it must be so that what's left will be prettier, or at least more useful, but it shouldn't be so. Everything ought to have a chance to be beautiful and useful. Perhaps it ought to be so, admitted Bless, but it isn't. Isn't it so anywhere? I reckon not. Death and pain pay for all good things. She hoed away silently, hesitating over the choice of the plants, pondering this world-old truth, saddened by its ruthless cruelty. Death and pain, she murmured. What a price. Bless leaned on his hoe and considered. It had not occurred to him till now that Zora was speaking better and better English. The idioms and errors were dropping away. They had not utterly departed, however, but came crowding back in moments of excitement. At other times, she clothed Miss Smith's clear-cut, correct speech in softer southern accents. She was drifting away from him in some intangible way to an upper world of dress and language and deportment, and the new thought was pain to him. So it was that the fleece rose and spread and grew to its wonderful flowering, and so these two children grew with it into theirs. Zora never forgot how they found the first white flower in that green and billowing sea, nor her low cry of pleasure and his gay shout of joy. Slowly, wonderfully, the flowers spread white, blue, and purple bells, hiding timidly, blazing luxuriantly amid the velvet leaves, until one day, it was after a southern rain, and the sunlight was twinkling through the morning, all the fleece was in flower, a mighty swaying sea. "'darkling rich and waving, and upon it flecks and stars of white and purple foam. "'The joy of the two so madly craved expression that they burst into singing, "'not the wild light song of dancing feet, but a low, sweet melody of her father's fathers, "'whereunto Alwyn's own deep voice fell fitly in minor cadence. "'Miss Smith and Miss Taylor, who were sorting the mail, "'heard them singing as they came up out of the swamp, Miss Taylor looked at them, then at Miss Smith, but Miss Smith sat white and rigid, with the first opened letter in her hand. End of chapter 11 Miss Smith sat with her face buried in her hands while the tears trickled silently through her thin fingers. Before her lay the letter, read a dozen times. Old Mrs. Gray has been to see me, and she has announced her intention of endowing five colored schools, yours being one. She asked if 500000 would do it. She has plenty of money, so I told her $750,000 would be better, $150,000 apiece. 
She's arranging for a board of trust, etc. You'll probably hear from her soon. You've been so worried about expenses that I thought I'd send this word on. I knew you'd be glad. Glad? Dear God, how flat the word fell. For thirty years she had sown the seed, planting her life blood in this work that had become the marrow of her soul. Successful? No, it had not been successful, but it had been human. Through yonder doorway had trooped an army of hundreds upon hundreds of bright and dull, light and dark, eager and sullen faces. There had been good and bad, honest and deceptive, frank and furtive. Some had caught, kindled, and flashed to ambition and achievement. Some glowing dimly had plodded on in a slow, dumb, faithful work worthwhile. And yet others had suddenly exploded, hurtling human fragments to heaven and to hell. Around this school home, as around the center of some little universe, had whirled the sorrowful, sordid, laughing, pulsing drama of a world. Birth pains and the stupor of death, hunger and pale murder, the riot of thirst and the orgies of such red and black cabins as Elspeth's crouching in the swamp. She groaned as she read of the extravagances of the world and saw her own vanishing revenues. But the funds continued to dwindle until Sarah Smith asked herself, What will become of this school when I die? With trembling fingers, she had sat down to figure how many teachers must be dropped next year when her brother's letter came, and she slipped to her knees and prayed. Mrs. Gray's decision was due in no little way to Mary Taylor's reports. Slowly but surely, the girl had begun to think that she had found herself in this new world. She would never be attuned to it thoroughly, for she was set for different music. The veil of color and race still hung thickly between her and her pupils, and yet she seemed to see some points of penetration. No one could meet daily a hundred or more of these light-hearted, good-natured children without feeling drawn to them. No one could come across the thresholds of the cabins and not see the old and well-known problems of life and striving. More and more, therefore, the work met Miss Taylor's approval, and she told Mrs. Gray so. At the same time Mary Taylor had come to some other definite conclusions, she believed it wrong to encourage the ambitions of these children to any great extent. She believed they should be servants and farmers, content to work under present conditions until those conditions could be changed. And she believed that the local white aristocracy, helped by northern philanthropy, should take charge in such gradual changes. These conclusions she did not pretend to have originated, but she adopted them from reading and conversation. After hesitating for a year before such puzzling contradictions as Bless Alwyn and Harry Cresswell, for her to conclude to treat Bless Alwyn as a man despite his color was as impossible as to think Mr. Cresswell a criminal. Some compromise was imperative, which would save her the pleasure of Mr. Cresswell's company and at the same time leave open a way of fulfilling the world's duty to this black boy. She thought she had found this compromise, and she wrote Mrs. Gray suggesting a chain of endowed Negro schools under the management of trustees composed of northern businessmen and local southern whites. Mrs. Gray acquiesced gladly and announced her plan, eventually writing Miss Smith of her decision to second her noble efforts in helping the poor colored people, and she hoped to have the plan under way before next fall. The sharpness of Miss Smith's joy did not let her dwell on the proposed board of trust. Of course, it would be a board of friends of the school. She sat in her office looking out across the land. School had closed for the year, and Bless, with the carryall, was just taking Miss Taylor to the train with her trunk and bags. 
far up the road, she could see dotted here and there the little dirty cabins of Cresswell's tenants, the Cresswell domain that lay like a mighty hand around the school, ready at a word to squeeze its life out. Only yonder to the eastward lay the way out, the five hundred acres of the Tolliver plantation, which the school needed so sadly for its farm and community. But the owner was a hard and ignorant white man, hating niggers only a shade more than he hated white aristocrats of the Cresswell type. He had sold the school its first land to peak the Cresswells, but he would not sell any more, she was sure, even now when the promise of wealth faced the school. She lay back and closed her eyes and fell lightly asleep. As she slept, an old woman came toiling up the hill northward from the school and out of the eastward spur of the Gresswell barony. She was fat and black, hooded and aproned, with a great round head and massive bosom. Her face was dull and heavy and homely, her old eyes sorrowful. She moved swiftly, carrying a basket on her arm. Opposite her, to the southward, but too far for sight, an old man came out of the lower Cresswell place, skirting the swamp. He was tall, black and gaunt, part bald with tufted hair, and a cowed and furtive look was in his eyes. One leg was crippled, and he hobbled painfully. Up the road to the eastward that ran past the school with the morning sun at his back strode a young man, yellow, crisp-haired, strong-faced, with darkly knit brows. He greeted Bless and the teacher coldly and moved on in nervous haste. A woman hurrying out of the westward swamp, up the path that led from Elspeth's, saw him and shrank back hastily. She turned quickly into the swamp and waited, looking toward the school. The old woman hurried into the back gate, just as the old man appeared to the southward on the road. The young man greeted him cordially, and they stopped a moment to talk while the hiding woman watched. Howdy, Uncle Jim. Howdy, son. It's hot, ain't it? How is you? Tolerable. How are you? Polly, son, Polly. And what's in mind? I's going up to talk to old miss. So am I, but I just see Aunt Rachel going in. We better wait. Miss Smith started up at the timid knocking and rubbed her eyes. It was long since she had slept in the daytime, and she was annoyed at such laziness. She opened the back door and led the old woman to the office. Now what have you got there? She demanded, eyeing the basket. Just a little chicken for you and a few eggs. Oh, you are so thoughtful. Sarah Smith's was a grateful heart. Go long now, it ain't a thing. Then came a pause, the old woman sliding into the proffered seat, while over her genial dimpled smile there dropped a dull veil of care. Her eyes shifted uneasily. Miss Smith tried not to notice the change. Well, are you all moved, Aunt Rachel? She inquired cheerfully. No, I mean, we ain't going to move. But I thought it was all arranged. It was, gloomily. But the old colonel, he won't let us go. The listener was instantly sympathetic. Why not? she asked. He says we owes him. But didn't you settle at Christmas? Yes, m But when he found we was going away, he looked up some more debts. How much? I don't know exactly. More than a hundred dollars. Then the boys got in that trouble, and he paid the fines. What was the trouble? Well, one was a gambling, and the other stuck the overseer what was a whipping him. Whipping him? In horrified exclamation, quite as much as Aunt Rachel's matter-of-fact way of regarding the matter as at the deed itself. Yes'm, he didn't do his work right, and he whipped him. I speck he needed it. But he's a grown man, Miss Smith urged earnestly. 
Yes, he's 20 now and big. Whipped him, Miss Smith repeated. And so you can't leave? No, he say he'll sell us out and put us in the chain gang if we go. The boys is plumb mad, but I's a pleading with him not to do nothing rash. But I thought they had already started to work a crop on the Tolliver place. Yes, um, they had, but you see, they were arrested, and then Colonel Cresswell took him and loud they couldn't leave his place. Old man Tolliver was powerful mad. Why, Aunt Rachel, it's slavery, cried the lady in dismay. Aunt Rachel did not offer to dispute her declaration. Yes, um, it's slavery, she agreed. I hates it mighty bad, too, cause I wanted the little chillins in school, but the old woman broke down and sobbed. A knocking came at the door. Hastily wiping her eyes, Aunt Rachel rose. I'll, I'll see what I can do, Aunt Rachel. I must do something, murmured Miss Smith hastily as the woman departed, and an old black man came limping in. Miss Smith looked up in surprise. I beg's pardon, mistress. I beg's pardon. Good morning. Good morning, she hesitated. Sachs, Jim Sachs, that's me. Yes, I've heard of you, Mr. Sykes. You live over south of the swamp. Yes, ma'am, that's me. And I's got a little shack, dar, and a bit of land what I's trying to buy. Of Colonel Cresswell? Yes, sir, of the colonel. And how long have you been buying it? Going on ten year now, and that's what I comes to ask you about. Goodness me. And how much have you paid a year? I generally pays about three bales of cotton a year. Does he furnish you rations? Only sugar and coffee and a little meat now and then. What does it amount to a year? I doesn't rightly know, but I's got some papers here. Miss Smith looked them over and sighed. It was the same old tale of blind receipts for money on account. No items, no balancing. By his help, she made out that last year his total bill at Cresswell's store was perhaps $40. And last year's bill was bigger than coming because I hurt my leg working at the gin and had to have some medicine. Why, as far as I can see, Mr. Sykes, you've paid Cresswell about $1,000 in the last 10 years. How large is your place? Oh, about 20 acres. And what were you to pay for it? For one, have you got a deed? Yes, but I ain't finished paying yet. The colonel say as how I owes him $200 still, and I can't see it. That's why I come over here to talk with you. Where is the deed? He handed it to her, and her heart sank. It was no deed, but a complicated contract binding the tenant hand and foot to the landlord. She sighed, he watching her eagerly. I's getting old, and I ain't got nobody to take care of me. I can't work as I once could, and the overseer's... It drives me too hard. I want a little home to die in. Miss Smith's throat swelled. She couldn't tell him that he would never get one at the present rate. She only said, I'll look this up. You come again next Saturday. Then sadly, she watched the ragged old slave hobble away with his cherished papers. He greeted the young man at the gate and passed out while the latter walked briskly up to the door and knocked. Why, how do you do, Robert? How do you do, Miss Smith? Well, are you getting things in shape so as to enter school early next year? Robert looked embarrassed. That's what I come to tell you, Miss Smith. Mr. Cresswell has offered me 40 acres of good land. Miss Smith looked disheartened. Robert, here you are almost finished, and my heart is set on you going to Atlanta University and finishing college with your fine voice and talent for drawing. 
A dogged look settled on Robert's young, bright face, and the speaker paused. What's the use, Miss Smith? What opening is there for a nigger with an education? Miss Smith was shocked. Why, why, every chance, she protested. And where there's none, make a chance. Miss Taylor says, Miss Smith's heart sank. How often had she heard that deadening phrase in the last year, that there's no use, that farming is the only thing we ought to try to do, and I reckon she thinks there ain't much chance even there. Robert, farming is a noble calling. Whether you're suited for it or not, I don't yet know, but I'd like nothing better than to see you settled here in a decent home, with a family running a farm. But Robert, farming doesn't call for less intelligence than other things. It calls for more. It is because the world thinks any training good enough for a farmer that the southern farmer is today practically at the mercy of his keener and more intelligent fellows. And of all people, Robert, your people need trained intelligence to cope with this problem of farming here. Without intelligence and training and some capital, it is the wildest nonsense to think you can lead your people out of slavery. Look round you, she told him of the visitors. Are they not hard-working, honest people? Yes, ma'am. Yet they are slaves, dumb, driven cattle. But they have no education. And you have a smattering, therefore are ready to pit yourself against the organized plantation system without capital or experience. Robert, you may succeed. You may find your landlord honest and the way clear. But my advice to you is finish your education, develop your talents, and then come to your life work a full-fledged man and not a half-ignorant boy. I'll think of it, returned the boy soberly. I reckon you're right. I know Miss Taylor don't think much of us, but I'm tired of waiting. I want to get to work. Miss Smith laid a kindly hand upon his shoulder. I've been waiting thirty years, Robert, she said with feeling, and he hung his head. I wanted to talk about it, he awkwardly responded, turning slowly away. But Miss Smith stopped him. Robert... Where is the land Cresswell offers you? It's on the Tolliver Place. The Tolliver Place? Yes, he's going to buy it. Miss Smith dismissed the boy absently and sat down. The crisis seemed drawing near. She had not dreamed the Tolliver Place was for sale. The old man must be hard-pressed to sell to the Cresswells. She started up. Why not go see him? Perhaps a mortgage on the strength of the endowment. It was dangerous, but... She threw a veil over her hair and opened the door. A woman stood there who shrank and cowered, as if used to blows. Miss Smith eyed her grimly, then slowly stepped back. Come in, she commanded briefly, motioning the woman to a chair. But she stood, a pathetic figure, faded, worn, yet with unmistakable traces of beauty in her golden face and soft brown hair. Miss Smith contemplated her sadly. Here was her most haunting failure— this girl whom she first had seen twelve years ago. In her wonderful girlish comeliness, she had struggled and fought for her, but the forces of the devil had triumphed. She caught glimpses of her now and then, but today was the first time she had spoken to her for ten years. She saw the tears that gathered but did not fall. Then her hands quivered. Bertie? she began brokenly. The girl shivered but stood aloof. Miss Smith, she said. No, don't talk. I'm bad. But I got a little girl, Miss Smith. Ten years old, and, and I'm afraid for her. I want you to take her. I have no place for one so young. And why are you afraid for her? The men, they are beginning to notice her. Where? At Elspeth's. Do you stay there now? Yes. Why? He wants me to. Must you do what he wants? Yes, but 
I want the child different. Don't you want to be different? The woman quivered again, but she answered steadily, No. Miss Smith sat into a chair and moistened her dry lips. Elspeth's is an awful place, she affirmed solemnly. Yes. And Zora? She's not there much now. She stays away. But if she escapes, why not you? She wants to escape. And you? I don't want to. This stubborn depravity was so distressing that Sarah Smith was at an utter loss what to say or do. I can do nothing, she began. For me, the woman quickly replied. I don't ask anything before the child. She isn't to blame, the older woman wavered. Won't you try, pleaded the younger. Yes, I'll try, I'll try. I'm trying all the time, but there are more things than my weak strength can do. Goodbye. Miss Smith stood a long time in the doorway watching the fading figure and vaguely trying to remember what it was that she had started to do when the sharp staccato step of a mule drew her attention to a rider who stopped at the gate. It was her neighbor, Tolliver, a gaunt yellow-faced white man, ragged, rough, and unkempt, one of the poor whites who had struggled up and failed. He spent no courtesy on the nigger teacher but sat in his saddle and called her to the gate, and she went. Say, he roughly opened up, I've got to sell some land and then Dan Cresswell's after it. You can have it for $5,000 if you get the cash in a week. With a muttered oath, he rode abruptly off, but not before she had seen the tears in his eyes. All night, Sarah Smith lay thinking, and all day she thought and dreamed. Toward dark, she walked slowly out the gate and up the highway toward the Cresswell Oaks. She had never been within the gates before, and she looked about thoughtfully. The great trees in their regular curving rows must have been planted more than half a century ago. The lawn was well tended and the flowers. Yes, there were signs of taste and wealth, but it was built on a moan, cried Miss Smith to herself passionately, and she would not look round any more, but stared straight ahead where she saw old Colonel Cresswell smoking and reading on the veranda. The Colonel saw her too and was uneasy, for he knew that Miss Smith had a sharp tongue and a most disconcerting method of argument, which he, as a Southern gentleman, courteous to all white females, even if they did eat with niggers, could not properly answer. He received her with courtesy, offered a chair, laid aside his cigar, and essayed some general remarks on cotton weather. But Miss Smith plunged into her subject. Colonel Cresswell, I'm thinking of raising some money from a mortgage on our school property. The colonel's face involuntarily lighted up. He thought he saw the beginning of the end of an institution which had been a thorn in his flesh ever since Tolliver, in a fit of rage, had sold land for a Negro school. Hmm, he reflected deprecatingly, wiping his brow. I need some ready money, she continued, to keep from curtailing our work. Indeed. I have good prospects in a year or so. The colonel looked up sharply but said nothing. And so I thought of a mortgage. Money is pretty tight, was the colonel's first objection. The land is worth, you know, at least $50 an acre. Not more than $25, I fear. Why, you wanted $75 for poor land last year. We have 200 acres. It was not for nothing that this lady had been born in New England. I wouldn't reckon it is worth more than $5,000, insisted the colonel. And $10,000 for improvements. But the colonel arose. You had better talk to the directors of the Jefferson Bank, he said politely. They may accommodate you. How much would you want? Five thousand dollars, Miss Smith replied. Then she hesitated. That would buy the land, to be sure. But money was needed to develop and run it, to install tenants, 
and then two for new teachers. But she said nothing more and nodding to his polite bow, departed. Colonel Cresswell had noticed her hesitation and thought of it as he settled to his cigar again. Bless Alwyn arose next morning and examined the sky critically. He feared rain. The season had been quite wet enough, particularly down on the swampland, and but yesterday Bless had viewed his dikes with apprehension, for the black pool scowled about them. He dared not think about what a long heavy rain might do to the wonderful island of cotton which now stood fully five feet high, with flowers and squares and budding bowls. It might not rain, but the safest thing would be to work at those dikes, so he started for spade and hoe. He heard Miss Smith calling, however. Bless? Hitch up! He was vexed. Are you in a hurry, Miss Smith? He asked. Yes, I am, she replied with unmistakable positiveness. He started off and hesitated. Miss Smith, would Jim do to drive? No, sharply. I want you particularly. At another time, she might have observed his anxiety, but today she was agitated. She knew she was taking a critical step. Slowly, Bless hitched up. After all, it might not rain, he argued as they jogged toward town. In silence, they rode on. Bless kept looking at the skies. The south was getting darker and darker. It might rain. It might rain only an hour or so, but suppose it should rain a day, two days, a week. Miss Smith was looking at her own skies, and despite the promised sunrise, they loomed darkly. Five thousand dollars was needed for the land and at least another thousand for repairs. Two thousand would buy a half dozen desirable tenants by paying their debts to their present landlords. Then two thousand would be wanted for new teachers and a carpenter shop. Ten thousand dollars. It was a great temptation, and yet, once in the hands of these past masters of debt manipulation, would her school be safe? Suppose, after all, this gray gift, but she caught her breath sharply just as a wet splash of rain struck upon her forehead. No, God could not be so cruel. She pushed her bonnet back. How good and cool the water felt. But on Bless, as he raised the buggy top, it felt hot and fiery. He felt the coming of some great calamity, the end of a dream. This rain might stay for days. It looked like such a downpour. And that would mean the end of the silver fleece, the end of Zora's hopes, the end of everything. He gulped in despairing anger. And hit the staid old horse the smartest tap she had known all summer. Why, bless, what's the matter? called Miss Smith. As the horse started forward, he murmured something about getting wet and drew up at the Toomsville bank. Miss Smith was invited politely into the private parlor. She explained her business. The president was there, and Colonel Cresswell, and one other local director. I have come for a mortgage. Our land is, as you know, gentlemen, worth at least $10,000. The buildings cost $15,000. Our property is therefore conservatively valued at $25,000. Now I want to mortgage it for, she hesitated, $5,000. Colonel Cresswell was silent, but the president said, Money is rather scarce right now, Miss Smith, but it happens that I have $10,000 on hand. Which we prefer, however, to loan in one lump sum. Now, if the security were ample, I think perhaps you might get this ten thousand dollars. Miss Smith grew white. It was the sum she wanted. She tried to escape the temptation, yet the larger amount was more than twice as desirable to her as the smaller, and she knew that they knew it. 
They were trying to tempt her. They wanted as firm a hold on the school property as possible. And yet, why should she hesitate? It was a risk, but the returns would be enormous. She must do it. Besides, there was the endowment. It was certain. Yes, she felt forced to close the bargain. Very well. She declared her decision, and they handed her the preliminary papers. She took the pen and glanced at Mr. Cresswell. He was smiling slightly, but nevertheless, she signed her name grimly in a large, round hand Sarah Smith. End of chapter 12.